What is up, all of my beautiful freaking people? Welcome back to another episode of FML Talk. Y'all are in for a fucking treat today because I have found a gem of a man to come on this show. He is a near and dear friend in my life, and I cannot wait for you all to meet him and hear about his incredible story. It's a really good episode, you guys. So sit back, grab a drink, and welcome to FML Talk. Oh my God. Wait, how old was the other girl? 19. Can you believe that shit? Hey, this is Gabrielle Stone. Good book. I do not He did what? 48 hours? What a dick. Yeah, but have you seen all the photos on our Instagram? And this is FML Talk. Oh no, she didn't. I met Chris Heck years ago when I was on the set of a film, Speak No Evil. And we kept in touch after that. And I have worked with him many, many times since. He is, in my eyes, such a creative genius that I want him attached to anything that I'm doing because it always turns to gold. And before we jump into his interview, I want to give you guys a little insight as to where you might have heard of him before in regards to my life. So in The Ridiculous Misadventures of a Single Girl, I write about going to Arizona to shoot a film. And in that film, there were a lot of very similar themes going on in the film, in the role that I was playing that mirrored the stuff I was trying to heal from in my real life. And the director of that film was behind camera and was feeding me these lines um, and these emotions that he wanted me to see while we were shooting a a specific scene in the film. And it was like, he never loved you. He's going to leave you. It's just like, nobody cares about you. You're totally abandoned. Like all the shit that just made me hysterically cry, which was great for the footage. Um, Chris Heck is that director. And I say that lovingly because he didn't know the severity of what I was dealing with. Um, and I trust him so implicitly as, as a creative and as an actress that I always tell him to, you know, full on go for it. And I think he's a brilliant director. So I wanted to bring him on today to talk about male vulnerability. It's such an important topic to discuss because if we can help the men in our world reprogram the bullshit that society has placed upon them as to don't cry, don't be vulnerable, you know, be a man, whatever the hell that even means. I I think it could really change so many dynamics in our world. And Chris, his story and what he's been through in his life and how he has not only recognized that, but taken action around that is really, really beautiful. And I cannot wait for you guys to fall in love with this man the way that I love him. So let's jump in to the interview. Chris Heck, welcome to FML Talk. Thank you. I feel like I've been in the FML world behind the scenes yeah, for so long. For so long. Yeah. So you not only shot the cover of The Ridiculous Misadventures, yep. which is a you know big deal in itself, but you shoot so much stuff for me. You do pitch decks. I mean, I, I hire you anytime I fucking can. I, I appreciate that. Because I need you, all the hiring I can get. But yeah, but it, no, it's, it, I mean, it's great. You're my friend and all, but like it's because you are a creative genius you can be all weird and shy about it over there, but like it's it's a fact. Um, I'm just honored that I get to witness your rise to the fame of your career, which I know is coming. So I'm happy that you're here. And I, I'm going to try to accept all of those compliments. It's very difficult to, for me. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get into that. Uh, <laughs> so thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, but I'm really excited to have you here because I, over the years from us working together, have come to know you on a personal level and know your backstory and your history. And I think it's really, well, let's just be really fucking candid about it. We were driving to a shoot and we were shooting the shit about some heavier topics And it kind of hit me that like you would be a perfect person to come on and open up in a vulnerable way, which is often sometimes difficult for men. Um, So I'm really happy that you're here to do that. Yeah, thanks. You know, I I completely agree with you. I think men 
have such a harder time with vulnerability. I know I have in my life and over the past few years have been trying to be more open, more vulnerable and have only seen good things come yeah. of that. So for you to say, Hey, come on this and be fucking vulnerable. I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're like, this is I the guess next that's, thing. That's what happens. <laughs> you start being vulnerable and then more things. Yep, come. But I yep. think it's a, it's a good thing. And I hope that I think men especially need examples of other men. Yes. Uh, and uh, oftentimes we have very negative examples of what other men have done. Uh, and a positive example of a man being open and vulnerable, I think, can hopefully cause other men totally. to be open and vulnerable. Yeah, and taking that stigma away yeah. and that that toxic term, you know, be a fucking man. Yeah. Because, like, what does that even mean? Yeah. So take me back, take me back to the beginning, um, because your childhood played a really instrumental part, the things that you went through in your childhood, to then infer decisions you made and and choices in your life as an adult. So yeah. take me back to the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I think it had a lot to do with me not being vulnerable mm. uh, for a long time because of things that I'd gone through. So, uh, you know, I know we had talked a little bit about my father and I'll kind of hone in on that a lot, I think, in my, my childhood story. But um, basically, my parents... Um, got together, got pregnant, got married, had me, and then my dad tried to kill himself. And that's when my mom realized, ooh, this is maybe not the best guy to be raising a kid with. Mm. <laughs> and, um, you know, realized that he had way more substance abuse issues than she knew about, um, among other things. And so she left him to try to help me you know, have a normal childhood as normal, put that in quotes. Right. Who the hell has a normal childhood? <laughs> Nobody interesting. Uh, <laughs> and so, sure. uh, yeah. So then from there, you know, she got remarried a few years later and I gained a whole step family, a couple of brothers and a sister and a stepdad. And, and um, my biological dad was then sort of in and out of my life for the next you know, 10 to 15 years, I guess. And it was always very, um, I guess, traumatic, you could mm -hmm. say. Like, he'd be in my life and it'd be nice and it's cool and I got a dad and then he goes on a bender and ends up in rehab and, you know, I don't have a dad anymore. And, and then, it was alcohol? Yeah, that mainly alcohol, you know, certainly a lot of other drugs and things, but alcohol was sort of his main thing and right. a lot of self-harm as well mm. um and so cried a lot as a kid you know and yeah. and I'm very thankful that my mom you know she made the choice early on that she wasn't really gonna hide what was going on with my dad mm -hmm. to me which was really difficult but I think also very important that I knew what was going on, you know, obviously not the gritty details to like right, a six right. year old, but you know, I did have an understanding of what was happening. And so, well, yeah. Cause otherwise there's like the kids just thinking it's their fault, you yeah. know, like why it must be something wrong with me if my dad keeps leaving. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I think having that happen sort of repeatedly was really difficult. And I, was very open and cried a lot and was just very vulnerable about it. And when that happens so much over your childhood, you start to build up a wall mm -hmm. and you start to protect yourself and you start to not, okay, he's back again, but I'm not going to let him get too close yeah. because he's just going to rip it away from me in six months or something. Right. And so then that vulnerability slowly started to get stuck behind this wall mm -hmm. until a point where, okay, great. He's in rehab again. I'm not crying about it. Right. But the flip side of that is I'm also not crying about other shit in my life that I probably should be. And I'm not talking about things and I'm not letting people in as much as I should be because, well, what if they're, you know, they're probably just going to leave. They're just right. going to ditch me. And, you know, and so, um, yeah, I guess kind of in a nutshell, that was a lot of the stuff that was going on there that led to me not being a vulnerable person to where as an adult, I'm now having to do a lot of work to, bring those walls down. Yeah. Um, and especially when I'm in a stressful situation or some sort of conflict or something like that, you know, those, 
those old habits kind of kick in. Yeah. That stuff bubbles up. I was listening to something recently, uh, and they, t- they described it as sort of like your, your home base, mm. your emotional home base. Right. You know, we all have these emotional home bases that we go back to because it's comfortable because it's familiar. Yeah. And for me, you know, that was sort of the, the comfortable home base that I had built up was to go back to that. Right. And so a lot of the work I'm doing now as a, an adult man <laughs> is mm-hmm. to try to build a new home base where that home base is vulnerable and that home base is open and honest and, uh, and caring and giving and all these things that I had sort of stuffed away. You know? Yeah. It's like your default setting. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I resonate with that a lot and I know everybody listening does too. Because there's, there's things we experience in our childhood and because we're so young in those formidable years, they really, they're like in our, our sense memories. It's not just like a thing in our brain. Like we, we physically go back to that default setting as a protection mechanism. Um, and it's, it's a very real thing to try and form new patterns and new habits and reprogram that default setting as an adult. Summer is here and life is not slowing down for us anytime soon. One of the things we have continuously relied on making our lives so much easier is factor meals. No prep, no mess, no cleanup meals. I have really been off the wagon with my eating since having my son and for my health, my wellness, and my mental sanity, I have been switching my dinners to more healthy options from factor. They have 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, so I never get bored. And Tay is continuously shocked every time he sits down to eat one because they are so freaking tasty. They have breakfast, lunches, dinners, and desserts. It's a treat to have restaurant-quality food that is so easy to prepare and doesn't come with the insane Postmates bill. Head to factormeals.com slash FMLtalk50 and use code FMLtalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code FMLtalk50 at factormeals.com slash FMLtalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Enjoy, FMLers. I think you see it all the time with, you know, if somebody grew up in a house where their parents were fighting all the time mm-hmm. and then fighting becomes your home base and then you're in a relationship and why am I fighting all the time? Why right. are we always fighting? Well, you keep, you're bringing it back there. Yeah. Um, that's just one example, but I think we all have those things and I don't know, for whatever reason, our trauma never manifests itself in positive right. <laughs> attributes, right. you know? You're like, can I have gone through this right. and have it like bring some fucking epic like superpower? Right. No, <laughs> never. It's always got to come out in some weird, dirty, grimy, right. you know, kind of way. But Yeah, but that's what makes us grow. So here we are. <laughs> yeah. um, so when was it that your dad's mental health took a, took a turn? I mean, for him, you know, so learning his story in sort of bits and pieces either from him or from other family members you know he grew up in an abusive household his father was an alcoholic his father was abusive I don't know where that stemmed from for him to try to trace this back but for my dad you know so he started um self-medicating at 12 or whatever oh my god um I think there was also not from his father but from someone else there was also some sexual abuse as well so that all that trauma for him was not getting dealt with right and then he found drinking yeah found drugs and then that just and especially when you start at such a young age it's shaping your brain yeah in you know unreversible ways irreversible ways was there physical abuse with you? No. So, and we had a really interesting experience when I was probably 11, mm-hmm. maybe 10, somewhere in that world. And he had, um, you know, he had just gone out and had been on a, and he got to a point where he couldn't just drink. Like it was always right. to an extreme and using drugs always to an extreme. And, and it was wreaking havoc, havoc on his body. And I saw him the day after he had been on a, on a bender and he asked me to come in the room and sit on his lap. And he was like kind of trying to open up to me about his childhood and his dad. And, Mm. you know, 
hiding under the bed and the dad hitting him with the broomstick and all oh this stuff God. to get him out. And, and I, as a 10 year old, I'm just uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, all I can think about is how uncomfortable I am and how weird this is. Right. And, um, he started convulsing and it was because he was going through withdrawals of everything oh that he had put in his body the night before. And I didn't know what was going on. I, I knew I didn't need to like run and call an ambulance. I knew he was just going through it, but I also didn't want to be sitting there anymore. So I got up to leave and he's like, I love you. And I'm like, I love you too. I don't know. Like, this is weird. And that was a moment that like stuck with me so much for my whole life. It was probably one of the most difficult moments of my childhood. And then as an adult, as I started working on this vulnerability thing, I ended up taking acting class mm. and you know me, that's like, that is a stretch. I, I, I can concur. <laughs> I, I strictly behind the camera kind of guy. But I thought, you know what, this is like, that's extreme vulnerability right there to yeah. take an acting class. And it'll help me as a director and as a filmmaker, be able to communicate and stuff. Totally. So I take this acting class and they say, I mean, they had this exercise, the very last thing we did where they give you some like bullshit line, like, I love bubble gum or whatever, but you're supposed to attach yeah. a childhood mm. memory that stands out to you to this line and deliver it with that emotion. Mm. And that's the first memory that popped into my head. I, oh no, 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 no. I can't, I can't use that. Right, like that's, right. that's way too vulnerable. I'm yeah. trying to be vulnerable, but I'm not trying to be that vulnerable. <laughs> so I was like, you know what, motherfucker, that's why you're here. Yeah. Attach that to this dumb bubble gum line, whatever it is, mm -hmm. go in there and, and say it. And so I did. The acting coach said, okay, who are you talking to? I said, my, my father. And what do you want in this situation? I was like, I'm just scared. I want to get out. Mm -hmm. And then he said, okay, what does he want in this situation? Mm. I went, oh. Yeah. I had never looked at that moment from his perspective before. And you can't blame yourself for doing that. I mean, you were 10. Yeah, you of know? course. But as an adult, yeah, that's heavy. It gives you so much perspective. And so you ask, you know, if I ever had to endure physical violence from him, I did not, not even close. But what I realized was in that moment, he was trying to explain to me why he was the way he was yeah, and why he disappears from my life mm. and then comes back yeah. because he's scared that he's going to be his dad, right? that he's going to be that in my life. Yeah. And so uh, that really changed my relationship with him. Unfortunately, he had already passed away by the time that this happened. Mm -hmm. um, but interestingly, it still changed my relationship with him. Yeah, you know, and I, I, it's I feel like every six months, every year, my relationship with him still changes, mm -hmm. despite him now being gone for. I don't know, four or five years, five years probably. Oh, I didn't realize it was that recent. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I know you've lost your dad too. Yeah. At, in a very at, different way. And very young. Uh, yeah. Do you feel like that change in relationship has happened over the years or do you still feel like that? Mm, that's such an interesting question. Um, I think because I lost him when I was so young, yeah. um, I have these really vivid memories and then a lot is filled in with the massive amounts of home videos that my parents took and photos. So that kind of fills in the blanks. Yeah. Um, so I haven't felt, I, I was always like daddy's little girl, you know, like we played Cinderella. So I haven't f felt like that changed over the years, but there's been moments where I've realized as an adult, like the gravity of him not being here, mm. you know, like, my wedding day or um, when I published my book or uh, there was one year on his birthday that I like started YouTubing a bunch of videos of my mom and my dad, which I'm so blessed that I can do that. Yeah. You know, I'm very aware of like how amazing it is when my mom is eventually gone that I can put on the howling and watch both of them <laughs> on screen. Right. Like that's such a gift. Um, and I remember YouTubing all of these videos and being like, God, I never even really got, to know him, yeah. you know, because when you're that young, you don't know your parents, right. you know, like your caretakers and they make you laugh and like you feel safe, but like you don't know them as people, as yeah. adults. You didn't have adult relationships. Yeah. And them. so that was sad to me that like, I wasn't ever going to be able to know him in that sense. Yeah. yeah. But that's an interesting question. I, I, I've never, I've never looked at it like that. I think probably because of it being so long ago, 
But I didn't realize that that your dad's passing was so recent. Yeah, and we should probably get into that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, if you feel comfortable, I'd love for you to tell me, you know, if you can take me through what it, how you found out, what happened, what it was like. Yeah, so he, um, he had just gotten out of jail for something. Who knows what? Something stupid, I'm sure. Um, and... He had come back to my grandmother's, his, his mother's house and sort of helped her. She was just getting out of the hospital. So he, he really took care of her for a month or so. And um, I was not, I was living out of town, but this was sort of around the holidays. So I came back and I saw him and it was weird. And I'm, you know, I'm in my mid twenties at this mm. point and, um, and had kind of really written him off to an extent, part of building up that wall, right. you know, was, knowing that I needed to cut this person out um, for my own well-being. Yeah. And so I saw him, but it was like, it was just kind of weird. And I remember the the very last time I saw him on that trip home for Christmas, he, uh, he said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really glad I got to see you and spend a little time with you. And, and you know, he was kind of trying to have a heartfelt moment. And mm-hmm. I was very just like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'll right. see you later. And then, and there, because there's a lot of anger that builds up over twenty plus years of someone popping in and out of your life, and you know, you being disappointed of them for going on benders and being in jail. It's like it's very warranted. Yeah, and and really, the last time I think before that that I had talked to him, he called me and was like on the run from the police and like wanted me to wire him money so that he could get to rehab before they caught him and like all this. I'm like. And I told him on the phone, I was like, I'm going to do this because I know you're going to call somebody else Mm -hmm. for it if I don't do it. But this is the last time. Yeah. And I don't ever want to do this again. Right. And that was it. And then I saw him again a few years later at this Christmas time. And then about a month after that, I was still kicking around my hometown. And and I was at my mom's and my, my mom and my grandmother, which would be her ex-mother-in-law yeah they stayed really close Mm -hmm. you know my whole childhood my mom was very good at staying close with my dad's side of the family and making sure that I was included in that side of the family so my grandmother calls my mom and she's just in hysterics and my mom runs out of the house and as she's running out of the house she goes your dad just killed himself Mm. and and she's out the door and I think you know she was just in panic mode trying to get to my grandmother and I had this moment of whoa, is this real? Is this like, did that really just happen? And and he had tried to take his life several times over the years unsuccessfully. And so we went down and, and got to my grandmother and she was just absolutely hysterical. And, um, and then my uncle came and we had to go down to where my dad was living and talk to the police and do all this stuff, you know, and, and it, it for me really became okay, how can I take care of everybody else? Right. How can I make sure my grandmother's okay? How can I, you know, all that, that sort of thing, which I think is another very guy thing of, okay, I don't want to deal with my feelings. So I'm going to take care of everybody else. Right. If know? I, if I make everybody else a priority, I won't have to tap into yeah. the fact that I want to fucking cry my eyes out. Yeah. yeah. And so I didn't cry. I didn't cry at all. And you know, my grandmother wanted to see his body. I didn't want her to have to do that alone. So I went with her to see him. And it's, it's not like seeing somebody at a funeral and you see them, you know, on a metal thing in a, you know, funeral home. Yeah. It's blue. It's just like, it was, that is an image that is just seared into my mind, but it was, okay, how can I help my grandmother? How can I make sure she's good? And so I took care of all that. We had the funeral, we did everything. I left my hometown, went back to Phoenix where I was living at the time. Didn't tell a soul. Didn't tell anybody. I just was like, okay, great. Now I don't have to talk about it anymore Mm. because none of my friends here know. My coworkers don't know. Nobody knows that he died, how he died, any of that. So I just don't have to talk about it anymore. Wow. And so I just held that in for, I don't know, probably six months, nine months. Didn't talk to anybody about it. I can't even imagine what that must have been like holding that in for so long because I'm such a big proponent of speaking about what you're going through and sharing your story so that you can process it and eventually like grieve it and move through it. So to hear that you held that in 
it must have been exhausting. I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing to myself yeah. at the time. It didn't feel like, oh, I want to. It didn't feel like, oh, I want to talk about this, but I don't think I can. It was, I don't want to talk about this. Right. It was that wall. Right. You know, and, and it was how as a teenager and as a, as a you know, preteen, I had learned to deal with my feelings was not mm-hmm. to put up the wall. So I, I went back to that home base of, okay, I'm just going to not talk about this and I'm not going to deal with it. And that's going to be great. Yeah. It's going to be fine. And everybody else is doing fine. So I'm going to be fine. And I didn't realize the trouble it was making for me mentally. You know, yeah. I didn't realize that I was slipping into depression, right. you know, and, and not connecting the dots, you know? And, um, and once I started talking about it more openly, um, it was like a huge weight was just oh, I lifted bet. off of my shoulders. And then for me, the, the, the real benefit has been seeing other people be able to tell their stories because yeah. they think, oh, he, he knows, he gets it. He's been there too. Cause yeah. so many people have lost someone to suicide yeah. and they're feeling like they can't talk about it. There's all this shame and guilt and all these things wrapped up in it. And so for me, it really was such a blessing, I guess, to once I did start telling my story, it was like all these people like, oh, hey, actually, I have a story too. Right. I, I want to talk about I right. want to talk about that. And, and it brought me closer to certain people and, and gave them a platform to be able to tell what's going on with them. And yeah, they, they felt finally safe that they could in turn be vulnerable and share their story. We were talking about this when we were driving in the car the other day, that there's so much guilt and shame around suicide. You know, I lost my uncle in 2019, um, the same way that my mom lost her dad, which was also his dad, um, gunshot to the head. And very traumatic for my poor aunt that had to walk in and like witness all of that. And so we were discussing this and I, I've now been through it. So I I don't feel when I talk about my uncle and, and his story, the shame of, of saying that it was suicide or how, or any of that, but I know a lot of people do. Why do you think that is like, did you, when you started talking about your story, and you finally said, you know, like my dad killed himself. Did you have trepidation saying how when people asked or if they did ask? Like, was there ever a sensitivity around that where you didn't want to say that for whatever reason? Yeah, I think I think it makes people uncomfortable, mm. especially people that haven't dealt with it right. in their personal life yet. And I say yet because unfortunately the fact is you're probably going to. Um, but so it makes people uncomfortable. And when you're having a conversation, the last thing you're trying to do is make somebody uncomfortable. It's very different. If I said, Oh, my dad had leukemia. They go, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know? But when you say my dad hung himself, that's a real conversation stopper. (laughs) You know, like nobody really is, is trying to dive into that territory. Um, And so I think the fact that it makes people uncomfortable leads you to kind of, not divulge yeah. so much, but we need to get over that discomfort right? and we need to normalize talking about it because we need to normalize people who are having those thoughts, mm-hmm. being able to talk about it. Yes. Because so much of why those people are not coming forward and telling their friends and telling their family that they're feeling that way is because they're feeling shame about it. They're feeling, feeling guilt about it. Yeah. You know, you hear people also talk about suicide as like this selfish thing. And I hate that label. It's so, it's so horrible. And, and the last thing people who are suicidal need is us putting that label on it because it's not, it's not selfish. It's, and, and so we need to really break down the stigma, break down the shame and be able to talk about all sorts of mental health. Like it's normal, Yeah, you know, and, and if you broke your arm, you'd go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. If you broke your brain, you sit at home and keep it to yourself. Right. You know, it's where, like, where it make it make sense. Right. Yeah. And so we need to cut that shit out. I, I am <laughs> so with you on that. I will never forget when I was sitting in Rome on the last night of my eat, pray, FML trip. And I was sitting across from Javier and, you know, he brought up his brother and I was like, you know, you never told me what happened. And I, I saw 
such a change in his physicality in that moment. And he like physically tensed up. And I was like, you don't, I'm sorry, you don't have to talk to me about it. And he was like, no, I haven't spoken about it since it happened. And I need to like verbalize it and say it. And he told me, you know, what happened, how it happened. And you could see that it was like he had had bricks sitting on his chest for two years and they finally were removed and placed to the side. And it, I can't imagine carrying that type of weight around for so long because something so horrible happened that you can't comprehend or process it enough to verbally speak the words out. And that's so sad to me that any individual would go through that. So I feel like the more we can destigmatize suicide in itself and mental health as a whole, um, it won't only help the people that are having the thoughts and the, you know, fears of certain mentalities, but it'll also help the people that unfortunately get left behind when they choose to make that decision um, because they go through a whole slew of mental things when they're left to deal with that grief. It's a different kind of grief. Suicide's a different kind of grief than someone, you know, got in an accident or got sick and died. Yeah. I also have been realizing, I think you have a responsibility to heal. Mm-hmm. I don't, not just to yourself. I mean, I think certainly to yourself, but for me, this doesn't just apply to my father's suicide, but just any of the trauma from my childhood. I'm realizing I have a responsibility to heal for the people around me. Oh my God, dude. Because I was then carrying a lot of that, um, that trauma and, and things that I was just stuffing down in were coming out in weird ways. Yeah. You know, they come out sideways, you know, it never comes out the same way it went in. It comes out in some weird way where now I'm being really selfish in a relationship or I'm, um, I'm looking to my boss to be like a father figure to me and like having like these expectations and like, and, and trying, Oh no, please let me do a good job. Let me be the best, you know, employee ever, you know, and make you happy. And, you know, Oh, that's so interesting because I know who you're referring to. That's just very interesting (laughs) to see that dynamic from this perspective. Now Um, I agree with you. I think what you just said is at the core of fixing humanity as a whole, because people that don't deal with their trauma and their shit then project that onto other people and they get hurt in the crossfire. So it's never an excuse, but it becomes a reason. And the reason's all fine and dandy, but if someone else is still getting hurt in that crossfire, that's your shit that you need to go figure out and deal with. Like take your ass to therapy, start going inward, like do the work on yourself to fix that trauma, whatever happened to you, because it's probably not your fault and stop projecting it onto other people. Yeah. If more people could realize that we would live in an entirely different world. And it's not a male female thing. I'm proud to say that I have a man on FML talk right now that just (laughs) fucking dropped that truth bomb in itself. Um, Because in my world and experiences, I've been caught in the crossfire of so much unhealed trauma from men, but it's, it's nor it's not male nor female. You know, it's a human thing that we need to, to recognize and be aware of and adjust to have, healthier relationships in the future. Yeah, I I totally agree. And if you just look at my dad as a case study, his dad endured whatever he endured. I don't know that part of the story, but he became who he was as my grandfather. He then was abusive to his son who then became who he became. Mm -hmm. And my dad's solution was, well, I'll just stay away from my son when I'm, you know, drinking and using drugs and being crazy that didn't fix the problem. Right. You know, like, cause he didn't actually get to the core of what his issues were and solve them and deal with them. Um, so it came out sideways, like I said, and, and, and I had all these other repercussions and I want to be a dad. I want to have a kid. What am I passing down now? Yeah. If I don't solve this and fix this right now, 
I'm going to perpetuate that cycle in some weird way to my kid. And then it's, it just keeps going. You got to stop, stop the genetic cycle of it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know me, I don't drink, I don't use drugs. I never have been straight edge my whole life. So that's the, that's part of it that I'm not going to be exposing my, my kid to, but what about the 20 other things? Right. And I need to, buckle down and work on that shit. Cause I have a responsibility to, yeah. you know, that future kid and my future wife and, and my friends and my family and everybody around me to be the best that I can be and, and solve these problems. And I, I agree with you. I think we would live in a much different world if people would just examine themselves for a minute, not get scared of what they see, yeah, not run away from what they see, not mask what they see, but just examine it and work on it. Totally. Um, I want to dig into what you just said a little bit, because I know that you've been no drinking, no drugs your whole life. When was that a a conscious decision for you? So probably around middle school, my friends started experimenting with you know, drinking and cough syrup and pills and who knows cough what else. Cough syrup and pills. <laughs> Wait, because before you get into this, I got to be honest, the first time I met you on the film we were shooting, I was like, oh, he fucking rages. Yeah. You just look like a, a guy that parties. I don't know what it is about Everybody you. thinks that. <laughs> yeah. Everybody says So when that. I heard that, I was shocked. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Ever since, my whole life, everybody's like, oh, that kid's a pothead. Yeah. He's a partier. <laughs> yeah, I was like, nope. Um, but yeah, so my friends in middle school started dabbling in that stuff. And I think, you know, around that age, a lot of kids are, they're experimenting. And, and for me, like, I've already seen the dark side. Mm -hmm. Like I've already seen what this looks like in 30 years, not into it. I'm good. Like you guys do you. And so from very early on and, you know, one of those kids just died of an overdose a couple of years Mm. ago, you know, and so from very early on, I was like, nope, not doing it, st- staying out of it just because I'd seen that dark side. And that's another aspect of where I'm so thankful that my mom didn't hide that from me. She didn't hide what was going on with my dad. Mm. So even though for the most part, I wasn't really seeing him fucked up, right? I knew that he was and I knew why. And I knew, you know, that drugs and alcohol was playing a huge part in how fucked up his whole life was. Yeah. And so I just, you know, immediately cut it out. And I think high school was had difficult moments certainly of you know peer pressure and things like that yeah i can imagine i I was lucky enough to fall into sort of like the punk rock hardcore scene and within that straight edge is like a thing Uh, and there's a lot of people that subscribe to that sort of lifestyle and so through that i found a circle that was also you know against drugs and alcohol and that helped me um have that group of friends so that when the other group of friends was like, Oh, come on, man, right, just right. have a drink. It's like, nah, fuck you. I'll go, I'll go hang with my other friends, assholes. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think now as an adult, you know, okay, it's, it's, it's New Year's Eve. I'll have a flute of champagne or whatever, right, you know, right. like I'm not like totally hardline on it, but I think I probably could start drinking now where mm-hmm. I'm at and, and have a healthy relationship with it. Yeah. But why the fuck would I do that? Right. Like, I'm already the, broke. What's the point? <laughs> I already make bad decisions. I don't need it. You know what I mean? Oh it's like, why, who starts drinking in their thirties? Right, like, I right. don't need that. You know? <laughs> so I think like once you make it through high school and you can get through all the peer pressure and bullshit of high school, not drinking yeah. and not doing drugs, you're just kind of like, so eh. home free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think in, over the years, like building up that wall we were talking about, was there ever a point in friendships, in relationships, in your life where you were like, oh, this is a problem and I'm now projecting shit or treating someone unfairly because of my undealt with stuff? For sure. I mean, I think certainly my 20s was full of romantic relationships where I was a shitty partner, Mm. (laughs) you know, and, and selfish and and very um, afraid to get too close, mm. afraid to let anyone too close. And right. so that manifested itself in, in me, like being too cool to have a girlfriend and like dating around, you know, right. and like fuck the consequences of somebody on somebody else's side of things. Right. Like, and I think for me, so much of my childhood was seeking the validation of, of my father that mm. I was good enough, you know, that I, you know, why can't he just 
stay sober. Right. Especially when you're like six, you right. don't understand why somebody can't just not drink. Like yeah. that doesn't make sense to Sometimes you. Sometimes it's even hard to ra- like wrap your head around it as an adult. You're yeah. like, why can't you just stop? Yeah. You know? And so you start to internalize a lot of that and you start to think that I'm not worthy. I'm not, I don't have any value. Yeah. I'm not worth it. And so then as an adult in romantic relationships, what I'm seeking is someone just to validate me mm-hmm. and someone to say, you're worth it. And once I got that, mm. I don't need you anymore. I'm out. And this isn't happening consciously. Well, no, of course. But, you know, in hindsight, looking back at what I was doing, I was like, oh, you fucking idiot. Basically, like, what you just said is every fuck boy has <laughs> some type of deep traumatic issue that they need to seek validation and then they're out. <laughs> Most likely, yes. Uh, um, yeah. And it's so crazy because I know you and I've known you for years now and that's so not you. You know what I mean? Like that. I don't know what you mean, but I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> that's not, that's not who you are yeah. at the core Yeah, at all. I agree. I agree. Like I am, you know, the little boy in, in me before the wall was built mm-hmm. is so loving, is mm-hmm. so caring, is so giving and is so compassionate, but I built that wall. Right. And so, like I said, all this work I've been doing is like break down that fucking wall, be loving, be compassionate, be in the relationship for the other person as Mm. much as you're in it for yourself. God, not to toot my own fucking horn, but here we go. I find the (laughs) best men to be on this show. Like the emotional (laughs) intelligence of the men that have graced this fucking stage is ridiculous. Intelligence has not been a word. That's I said emotional intelligence. <laughs> um, no, but I, and just for everyone that's watching this wondering, um, he's, he's not available. He's not on the market. No. He's taken by probably the most beautiful supermodel I've ever laid eyes on. It's kind of ridiculous. This is true. Um, but it, it's really, I, I, where do you think the disconnect is? Because I know so many people that listen to this and, and will watch this will say, God, if we could just have more men like that. People say that about Tay all the time. Um, and I agree. Oh, I would date Tay, by the way. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he is a catch. He is a catch. Um, but so many people say that, and I'm in agreement with it. So where do you think the disconnect is for men wanting to go inward and be vulnerable and and be able to address those deep stemming traumas and look in the mirror? not to have you speak for all men, but as a male, what would you infer on that? You got to want to do better. Mm. You have to want to be better. And I think this applies to just human beings, but we've all got our shit. We all do. And like, you're never going to, there's no winning here. It's, but it's just about constantly every day trying to be better. Yeah. And I think for men, so much of the societal pressure that's been put on us is career driven. Mm -hmm. And if I can make more money, if I can work more hours, if I can achieve this status, then I am contributing to society and worthy. I am a worthy man for, for society. I think we're, I think men honestly are a little lost right now as far as society's expectations of us go. I think the rise of, uh, feminism, the rise of, of more women, you know, holding more positions in the workplace and, and all these different in, in the military, all these places that were traditionally like, I'm a man and this is what I do. Right. I think so much of masculinity is now sort of lost in this. Well, what's our place? Right. What's our, you know, and men, I think really need to take a step back and look at can you be contributing more emotionally mm. to to our society, to our world? And this is not something that has happened in the history of the world. Yeah. You know? So we're really at a turning point where I think us as men as a whole and just as a society need to reevaluate what our expectations are of yeah. men and of boys mm-hmm. and being more open with our boys yes. to say, cry. Yeah. It's okay. What are you feeling? Start teaching that next generation, like not to be a man, like in that toxic term that people have used for years and years and years. You don't need to punch a hole in a sheetrock to get your point across. Yes. (laughs) You can use your words. Yeah. I mean, I still have fucked up knuckles from doing that my whole childhood. Thinking that, oh, this is how I communicate something. I'm going to punch a person or punch a wall or punch a whatever. 
we don't need that anymore. Yeah. Like this is how I let out my emotion and let out my aggression. It's like, no cry, like fucking cry. (laughs) Like that's a really big release for any human. And I can't imagine all of the stuff I've gone through and not using that as a release. I mean, what, what must that do to someone's physical body when that's all held in over years and years and years and years? Yeah. It's gotta fuck you up. Yeah. And I think it just, it starts with the boys. Yeah. We need to just be teaching our boys better. Yeah. And then we'll slowly work our way out of the hole that we've dug into over millennia. Fucking A, (laughs) dude. So when you think of what you want to teach your, you know, let's say you had a son in the future, what are the most important things that you would want to pass on to him growing up? Hmm. You're enough. Mm. You know, I want him to always know just being who he is, just existing. He is enough and he brings value to the world. That's something I still struggle with. Like that's probably my biggest struggle to this day. And so much of that is wrapped up with my relationship with my father. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be vulnerable. Like we're talking about, um, fix your shit. <laughs> fix your shit. Cause as much as I'm going to try to get him through childhood without. Yeah. You, you'll still fuck him up in some way or another. <laughs> it's that's inevitable. The way it goes. <laughs> you know, like everybody's parents fuck him up. And if you think your parents didn't, then you just haven't realized how yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So, you know, but he's going to need to, go through this same thing that I'm, I'm going through now. And, and hopefully with some guidance, he can go through it earlier. He's yeah. not going through it in his thirties. He's going through it in his twenties and saving himself and saving other people, the emotional harm of, you know, not dealing with that stuff. Yeah. That's really beautiful. And I think, I know I asked you the question about a son, but I, th- I feel like that goes with any child period. It's interesting. I think I'm, I'm more excited to have a son in a weird way because I, it's almost like I want to fix what my dad did. Yeah. You know, like I want to fix those. Redefine the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I would mean, love to have a daughter too. I, I can't so. wait to see you as a parent. You're going to be a rad dad. Um, <laughs> if you could tell our listeners one thing about if they're dealing with suicide in their life, if they're experiencing that type of grief, what would you offer up to them? You're not the first, Mm. you're not the only, and there are so many resources out there to help. Um, There's been books written, there's been films made, there's been podcasts, there are support groups, there are hotlines. Take a step. Yeah. Do something about it. Um, And it's not your fault. It's absolutely not your fault. If, if you know, someone took their life, someone around you, um, don't carry that weight, but also just face it. You got to take a look at it and grieve it. Yeah. Deal with it, handle it. And I think probably like me, your relationship with that person will continue to evolve. Mm. You'll continue to understand it more. You know, I understand my father so much more now than I did then. I wish I could have a conversation with him now with what I now know, Yeah, you know, and, and I've seen parts of him in me. I've seen parts of that depression. I've seen parts of that self harm come out in me. And I realize now why he was feeling that way. I realize now why his emotions were coming out that way. And I wish I could have those, those conversations, but in my own way, I continue to have those, that dialogue basically. And that, that relationship continues to evolve. And I think if you're going through this and you've lost someone, um, that relationship is not over. Yeah. Just remember that. And I I don't necessarily mean it in a supernatural way, but just your relationship with that person can continue to evolve. You can continue to love them. You can continue to have empathy for them Mm -hmm. and just try to focus on those things. Oh my God. Really, really beautiful dude. Really, really beautiful. Um, can you tell everyone where they can find you on social media so they can come over? My and home then- address. Is, <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, Instagram is probably my, my most used, but all my handles are the same, I think, everywhere. Uh, ChrisHeck13. Uh, my website is also chrisheck13.com. Nice. That's the spot. 
all the creative stuff going on. I can't thank you enough for being here. Um, Thanks for having me. You are the epitome of what men should strive for in the vulnerability department. Um, So no pressure, uphold that, (laughs) take it, wear it proud like a fucking badge. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you for being here, dude. I'm sweating. (laughs) The pressure's off now. We're closing out. (laughs) I want to thank Chris for coming on FML Talk. I am always so excited when we have really amazing men that join us to break down those stigmas and break down those walls. It's really special to me to have a platform where we can start putting more of that out there because I think it's so important. And I personally have attracted so many incredible men into my life in recent years. And I want to start getting as much of that out as I can to start integrating that into society more and making people know that it is okay to be vulnerable and it is okay to show your emotions. And we love that. Next week, y'all, this episode is a fucking doozy. I have been so excited to release it from the day we recorded it. Lauren Denham is a dear friend of mine. You guys read about her as Liz in The Ridiculous Misadventures of a Single Girl when we traveled around Asia together. And you also heard her on season one of FML Talk when she came on to share about her marriage and divorce and that she was the one that ended up cheating in her relationship. And it was a really powerful episode that we got a really great response from. And recently she went through some personal stuff that until I sat down for this interview, I did not know the severity of, and I wanted to bring her back on to discuss all of it. And it does not disappoint. I mean, it has all the things and then some, we talk about her relationship, how she got trapped in something that was abusive without even knowing it the dissolution of that relationship and how ayahuasca, the plant medicine, changed her life. It is a fucking incredible show, you guys. I cannot wait for next week. As always, make sure you are subscribed so you never miss an episode. If you want to hang out with us in the studio live, you can catch us on YouTube at youtube.com slash FML Talk. Make sure you keep up with us on Instagram at FML Talk Podcast for all the behind the scenes goodies. And I will see you all next week. Until then, have a self-love cocktail on me. Cheers. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a fertility physician and co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. We will talk about a wide range of topics, including the menstrual cycle, your hormones, infertility, IVF, mental health, and well, beyond. So join us and become part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. This podcast has been brought to you by Podcast Nation.